We come back to Luke chapter 8. We started last week reading first, excuse me, verses 42, 40 to 42, and then we're going to jump to 49 through the end of the chapter. Luke chapter 8. Now when Jesus returned, a crowd welcomed him, for they were all expecting him. Then a man named Jairus, a synagogue leader, came and fell at Jesus' feet, pleading with him to come to his house because his only daughter, a girl of about 12, was dying. And jumping to verse 49, while Jesus was still speaking, someone came from the house of Jairus, a synagogue leader. Your daughter is dead, he said. Don't, don't bother the teacher anymore. Hearing these, this, Jesus said to Jairus, don't be afraid. Just believe, and she will be healed. When he arrived at the house of Jairus, he did not let anyone go in with him except Peter, James, and John, and the child's father and mother. Meanwhile, all the people were wailing and mourning for her. Stop wailing, Jesus said. She's not dead, but asleep. And they laughed at him, knowing that she was dead, but he took her by the hand and said, My child, get up. Her spirit returned, and at once she stood up, and then Jesus told them to give her something to eat. Her parents were astonished, but he ordered them not to tell anyone what had happened. So this morning we come back to exploring the compassionate power of Jesus that we started talking about last week. We looked at how Jesus, if you remember last week, how He, in His compassion, He's accessible to everyone. He's always available. He's interruptible by us. He doesn't mind being interrupted. And He's inexhaustible in working in us and on us to complete that amazing transformation that He wants to do in us. And we saw how he stopped and dealt with that woman with, with an issue of bleeding that she'd had for 12 years. And rest, he restored her physically, he restored her socially, and he restored her spiritually, making her completely whole. But as, as he was working with her, the 12-year-old daughter of Jairus died. And to most people, that was the end. In fact, someone from his household, as we read, told him, Not, don't bother teaching me, she's gone. It's not worth it anymore. It's done, finished, no hope left. You know, I think of all the fears and all the phobias and all the elements of dread in human life, I think the ultimate fear is the fear of death. Nobody wants to really think and talk about that too much because death is the most certain fact of life, is it not? People naturally have an intense dread of death and do everything they can to push it away as far as possible. If someone were looking for a religion or a religious leader, they would be wise to find one who has power over this dreaded enemy, the power over death. And the tombs of all the religious world, the world religious leaders, excuse me, are occupied today except one. And that's the tomb of the Lord Jesus Christ, which has been empty ever since the third day that he was put in. 
And the ultimate distinguishing mark of Jesus Christ, the ultimate proof that He is God, the true Messiah, the Savior of the world, is His power over death. The power which was demonstrated not only in His own resurrection with unmistakable, inarguable finality, but a power which was demonstrated in His ability to to raise others from the dead as well. And we see that again right here in the story that we just read. Here's a story of the raising of a 12-year-old girl who was the daughter of a synagogue official. She was dead. There was no question about that. I don't think Jesus had any question about that. But then he made her alive. In the book of Hebrews chapter 2, verses 14 and 15, we read, Since the children have flesh and blood, he too shared in their humility, humanity, excuse me, Jesus, as we know, took on our humanity, so that by his death he might break the power of him who holds the power of death, that is a devil, and free those who all their lives were held in slavery by their fear of death. The whole human race understands that fear. The whole human race during their whole lifetime from the beginning to the present day has been subject to the slavery of the fear of death. And Jesus came to destroy that. Jesus came to end our fear of death and to actually make us view death as a friend. How do you do that? Well, the eighth chapter of Luke is an amazing testimony to who Jesus is. In this chapter alone, from starting from verse 22 to the end of the chapter, Jesus showed his power to conquer the forces of nature. That's when he calmed the, the waves and the wind and uh, the, the storm that took place with the disciples out in the boat. He showed his power over demons, casting several thousand demons out of a seriously demon-possessed man. He showed his power over disease, healing the woman with a bleeding issue, which had lasted for 12 years, and now we're going to see his power over death. It's almost like a crescendo that Luke is building just in this one chapter, telling us without question that Jesus is the Messiah, the Savior of the world, God in human flesh, the one who has power over nature, power over demons, power over disease, power over death, the one who can bring the promised kingdom that he's been preaching, conquering sin, conquering death, conquering Satan, and conquering hell. Satan is the one who brought death into the world with his temptation, effectively killing the whole human race, making them all slaves to the fear of death. Folks, Jesus came to destroy that. Jesus came to give us eternal life, to take the sting out of death, that the Apostle Paul talks about. Now Luke has already recorded for us Jesus' power over death back in just the previous chapter, in chapter 7. He stopped a funeral procession by touching the coffin, and then he said, Young man, I say to you, arise. And the dead man sat up, sat up and began to speak. And so this account today is a second account of a resurrection. And there were, I'm sure there were probably many more that are not even written, um, not recorded, because you'll remember the disciples of, uh, disciples of John the Baptist came to Jesus when John had been arrested in Luke chapter 7, verse 19, saying, are, are you the expected one, or do we look for someone else? Jesus, John wants to know, if, if you're the one that, are you the Messiah, are you the Savior, are you, are you the one that was promised to us from the Old Testament? And Jesus answered and said to them in verse 22, Go back and report to John what you've seen 
and what you've heard. The blind receive sight, the lame walk, those who have leprosy are cleansed, the deaf hear, the dead are raised, and the good news is proclaimed to the poor. Just go back and tell John the power that you've seen in people's lives and tell them that the good news of forgiveness is being preached. That's all the answer you need. Our Lord has been doing this all along in His Galilean ministry. And what we have recorded in the Gospels is really only a snippet of what Jesus has, uh, did th- during those three years of His ministry. In the last verse of the Gospel of John, verse 25 of chapter 21, He closes with this statement, Jesus did many other things as well. If every one of them were written down, I suppose that not even the whole world would have room for the books that would be written. So he's been healing people. He's been casting demons out of people. He's been showing his power over nature. He's been conquering death. And here in Luke, uh, he provides for us another one of those miracles of the raising of this young girl. And right in the middle of that miracle, you remember that there was this interruption The interruption that took place when Jesus stopped and healed the woman with the bleeding issue. Now, Jairus, as we already mentioned last week, he was a very important person. He's a ruler of the synagogue. And he was coming to Jesus and begging Jesus to come to his house because his only daughter is dying. She's only 12 years old. She's just reached the prime of her life. That was a marriage age in Israel at the time. Time to get married and and have a husband and begin a family. This should have been the most wonderful time in the girl's life, but just to the contrary, she was dying. And Jesus agrees to go. In fact, he he started off in the process of going to this man's house, and the crowd was pressing in, and that that woman, (laughs) she grabs him and he stops him. And then we have that whole interlude of the healing of that woman. Just a side note here. It's interesting that Jesus is no respecter of persons. That's actually a positive thing and an encouragement to us. As I was going through this, it kind of reminded me about that commercial about shingles. Have you seen that one? Um, you know, people are proud that they eat right, they can run a marathon, they're the greatest shape of their life, and they, they, they look good, and they, they cut back in sugars and trans fat, but shingles doesn't care how healthy you are. People think Jesus is going to be impressed with their education, with their money, how much they do in society, how busy they are perhaps at church, or even the color of their skin, or, or their whatever status. But Jesus doesn't care. Jesus doesn't care. We can't impress Him with our works or with who we are. Everyone is a person and an individual to Jesus. And He wants to touch and transform everyone's life. So the important ruler of the synagogue had no more clout with Him than that poor outcast woman. She needed Him, and He stopped and cared for her. And by the time he's finished with the woman, and while Jesus was still speaking, verse 49 says, perhaps uh, to her or perhaps to the crowd, he often uses those moments as, as teaching moments, the worst possible scenario takes place. While Jesus was still speaking, someone came from the house of Jairus, the synagogue leader. Your daughter is dead, he said. Don't bother the teacher anymore. Was Jesus bothered? 
another mini lesson for us. Jesus can never be bothered. Isn't that great? Jesus can never be bothered. Jesus is never bothered when we come to him. He can handle it. He's got everything in the palm of his hand. He's, he's got that compassion. We talked about that last week. He cares, and he's got the solution. But for Jairus, the delay had proven deadly. Your daughter is dead. Are you kidding me right now? Jesus, did you hear that? Because you were so concerned about everybody else more than me, my daughter is dead. It's your fault, and it's the fault of this outcast person. She wasn't even supposed to be here in this crowd. If you really love like you say you love, my daughter wouldn't be dead right now. So easy for our minds to go that direction, isn't it? We feel like we need to blame somebody. It's so easy to blame God. But what I find so interesting here is that Jairus didn't go there, not even for a second. What did Jairus say to Jesus? For that, we have to go to Matthew's Gospel. Matthew chapter 9, verse 19, it tells us that Jairus came and knelt before him and said, My daughter has just died, but come and put your hand on her and she will live. That's amazing faith. That, there's really no equivocation there. There's no hesitation on him part. There's no doubt about his confidence in the power of Jesus. Remember, he was a leader of the synagogue in Capernaum where, where Jesus had been doing miracles for a long time. Being a Jewish leader, he, he knew the Old Testament. He knew the promises and the prophecies of the Messiah. And he has faith that Jesus has the power of God and that he represents God. He has, his faith is unwavering and death does not diminish that faith. Jesus, just touch her. I have confidence that you can do this. And hearing this, Mark chapter 5 tells us, Jesus said to Jairus, don't be afraid. Just believe. and She will be healed. Jesus is saying here, don't be anxious. Don't allow the fear to get the better of you. Don't start doubting. You see, fear and being anxious is the greatest enemy of faith. What, what if Jesus doesn't come through? Jairus could have been thinking. Why did I get my hopes up? It's probably not going to happen. Then I, leader of the synagogue, I've just made a fool of myself in front of the whole town. Nobody's going to listen to me anymore. And so our minds can spiral. But Jesus very quickly tells him, don't go there, Jairus. Don't allow your mind to go in that direction. Keep on believing, and she'll be healed. It's easy to stop believing for a while, after a while, isn't it? You pray and pray and pray. Why am I praying anymore? It's probably not going to happen. But here's a promise that Jesus makes. It's a promise of resurrection. Jesus comes with a promise of resurrection. Keep on believing because resurrection is going to happen. Now, interestingly enough, he's not making this man's faith a condition for the healing of his daughter. He didn't say, if you keep believing, I'll heal her. He didn't say, as often, as, uh, as often he did, your faith will make her well. He said, keep on believing and don't lose faith because I'm going to heal your daughter and show you that your faith is well-founded. Folks, this promise of resurrection is a picture of what he still promises us. 
He promises us life even though we may face death. Once we have put our faith in Jesus, our resurrection and eternal life is guaranteed. Jesus, keep on believing. Keep on trusting me. Don't doubt. Run at your race well because there is a resurrection coming. So they head straight off to Jairus' house, and we don't know how much time has passed from the time his daughter died till when they arrived, a couple hours or so, maybe a little bit longer. And the scene, upon, the, excuse me, upon arrival, becomes uh, uh, it's very dramatic, and we get a glimpse into the Jew, uh, Jewish funeral of that time. Now, when we go to a funeral, we're used to people being very solemn, very quiet, Decorum is of the essence, quietly comforting. But back then, number one, you didn't have embalming, so funerals had to happen very quickly. They knew the girl was dying, so they had already been making preparations. The mourners would have been on notice that she was dying and to be ready and available at any moment. They would have actually have hired professional mourners. That's a thing. There's still places in the, in the world that do that. They were trained to mourn, to cry, to wail. It was, it was a profession. And the more you paid, no doubt, the more mourners you could uh, have come and the more wailing that would go on. And Jairus was an important person, so they probably had a lot of them. Even in our own experiences in India and in Africa, they still do that. Luke tells us that by the time Jesus arrived, all the people were wailing and mourning for her. Matthew says they saw the noisy crowd and people were playing pipes. Absolute hysteria going on. Screaming, wailing, howling, shrieking, playing dissonant notes on high-pitched flutes. That's what they did, and they did their job well. Noisy disorder. But this was all pointless. This was from a people with no hope. Because death had happened. It's done. It's over. There's no more hope. But Jesus is bringing a new perspective to the situation here. There is hope, even in death. And he walks into this chaos, and he, he sees no hope in them. And as he goes into Jairus' house, he wants none of that present. And he tells everybody to get out. Why is that? Because when there is unbelief and strong doubt, where there is a lack of faith, God is hindered in doing His work. And that is something we need to understand in our own lives. Where there is a lack of faith, where there is strong doubt, unbelief, it hinders God from doing His work. Remember, there's a strong spiritual battle that is constantly going on around us. And one of the greatest weapons that Satan uses against us is doubt, unbelief, lack of faith. And if you remember, that's the very first attack that Satan made way back in Genesis against Eve. Did God really say? Doubt. Immediate Remember Jesus having a, very, a real difficult time doing miracles in his hometown in, in Nazareth. Mark 6 verse 5 records that he could not do any miracles there except lay his hands on a few sick people and heal them. Why? Because Mark tells us that Jesus was amazed at their lack of faith. He could not because of their lack of faith. 
And Scripture over and over again tells us to trust and not doubt. It's never spoken any more strongly than in James chapter 1. Listen, starting in verse, uh, verse 6. But when you ask, you must believe and not doubt, because the one who doubts is like a wave of the sea blown and tossed by the wind. Uh, wind. That person should not expect to receive anything from the Lord. That's, that's strong. Those are strong words. Such a person is double-minded, unstable in all they do. Doubt and unbelief hinders God's power. So verse 51 tells us, When he arrived at the house of Jairus, he did not let anyone go in with him except Peter, John, and James, and the child's father and mother. Meanwhile, all the people were wailing and mourning for her. Stop wailing, Jesus said. She is not dead, but asleep. So Jesus brings here a whole new perspective to this funeral. Jesus comes with a new perspective. He basically calls the funeral off. It's done. Go home. Stop weeping and wailing. Nothing to see here. She's not dead. She's asleep. Why does Jesus do that? Why did he say that? Because Jesus brings hope, and there's always life in Jesus. But life is not going to happen when there is death all, this, all around, especially spiritual death. And much of this wailing crowd must have been gathered in that home, because in Matthew 9, it actually says, after the crowd had been put outside. So Jesus had to actually put the crowd outside of the house. Why? Because Jesus is the light of the world, and when light enters, darkness has to leave. There's always a contrast between light and darkness. In 2 Corinthians 6.14, Paul asks a rhetorical question, what fellowship can light have with darkness? And the obvious answer is none. Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and what? The light, the life, excuse me. When Jesus entered that house, he said, get out, life has entered, death must, must leave. And Jesus here redefines death. She's not dead, she's asleep. This is actually the true perspective on death for believers. You see, death in our minds indicates finality, right? That's, that's the typical way we think about death. People tend to think that death is the end. It's final, finished, and it, it is for plants and animals, but it's not for, the, for people. Paul even referred to death as sleep when he spoke of David in the Old Testament in Acts chapter 13. Now when David had served God's purpose in his own generation, he fell asleep. So oftentimes in Christian circles, we talk about our loved ones fell asleep. See, death is not the end. It's just a form of sleep. In fact, it's a very brief sleep. The body may sleep a little bit longer, our, our physical bodies, as it decays because there's no more need for this old shell of a body. But the spirit, the spirit doesn't sleep, the spirit doesn't die, and that's where the life truly is. And our spirit is taken up. And in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verse 51, we read, Listen, I tell you a mystery. We will not all sleep. Talking about death. We will not all sleep, but we will be changed. In a flash, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trumpet, for the trumpet will sound, the dead will be raised imperishable. That's that glorified body, not the old human body. And we will be changed. For the perishable must clothe itself with the imperishable, and the mortal with immortality. 
And when the perishable has been clothed with the imperishable and the mortal with immortality, then the saying that is written will come true. Death has been swallowed up in victory. And that's because of the life that we, we have. Death is temporary. Life is eternal. And it's temporary for everybody. Believers can celebrate its temporary nature because we know that when we die, we wake up on the other side, if you will, seated with Christ forever. That's what Paul says. For me to live, that's why Paul says, for me to live is Christ. To die is what? It's gain. It's even better. Far better, he says in 2 Corinthians 5, to depart and be with Christ. On the other hand, those who do not believe only have eternal separation from God to look forward to. In a horrible place called hell, which is a reality, a lake of fire where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth for all of eternity. So Jesus was bringing life to the household of Jairus, so he had to get rid of all those mourners. And on the way out, the Greek says they laughed and laughed at him. The Greek uses the word laugh twice to indicate it was a laughter of ridicule and of scorn and derision against Jesus. It's a laughter of supposed superiority. I mean, they knew. Who's this guy who said she's not dead? It was the same mocking laughter later on when they laughed at, at him at the cross. And I think the world still laughs at the divine perspective on things. The world still mocks and scoffs at Jesus and all things Jesus. But that doesn't take away from the truth. That doesn't limit what he does. So into the situation, he comes with a promise. He raises her. He'll give her life. And he did that because that's his stated purpose for his incarnation. The reason why he came into the world in the first place. I have come, he says in John 10, verse 10, that they may have what? They may have life. That's why I came. And have it to the full. Yet the world ridicules, the world laughs, and in their laughter, they choose death. So he comes to the funeral with a perspective that's very different. And thirdly, Jesus comes with power. He comes with power. He went into the room where she was, verse 45, and says, and it says, he took her by the hand and said, my child, get up. No, that was a nice touch. He took her hand. He didn't have to. But her father had professed his faith in him by saying, if you would touch, she would get better. So Jesus touched her, perhaps expressing his gentleness, his compassion, but I think it was also to bolster Jairus' faith. But it wasn't Jesus' touch that raised her. It was his voice. It was his word. Mark writes in chapter 5, verse 41, He took her by the hand and said to her, Talitha kum, which means, little girl, I say to you, get up. He just commanded her to live. That's the power of Jesus' word. It's the same power, the same word, the same way He spoke life into existence in the first six days of creation. John tells us that in the beginning was the Word describing Jesus. And 
in the beginning in Genesis, it tells us that he said, let there be, and there was. And it was very good. Here with this 12-year-old girl, he basically said, let there be life, and there was. Little girl, I say to you, get up. And she did. Mark says immediately the girl stood up and began to walk around. It was that same word at the tomb of Lazarus. At the tomb of Lazarus. Jesus called out, Lazarus, come forth. It was his word. And life was given to him. It was that same word that Jesus spoke to the son of the widow of Nain. When he stopped that funeral, Luke tells us in chapter 7, Jesus said, young man, I say to you, get up. The dead man sat up and began to talk. And when Jesus said to Jairus' daughter, my child, get up, verse 55 says, her spirit returned. It's kind of interesting, just like that. It wasn't another spirit. It was her spirit. Numa, her breath, her inner being, her, her inner person. Life came back into that body. Her life came back. It wasn't another life. It was her own. But the power of Jesus to make that body live and then to put back in that body the same spirit that had departed, to take that spirit wherever it was at that point. I don't know where it was. It wasn't in her at that moment. But to put that same spirit back in is staggering. The power of Jesus. Her spirit returned, and at once she stood up. Jesus gave her complete healing and full strength. You can just imagine that the strength of her body had to be deteriorating. I don't know how long she had been sick, but she had been de deteriorating, and she was, she was close to dying, and she actually died. So not only did Jesus bring life back to her, but he gave her full strength. She stood up and started walking around. Jesus' Jesus's compassionate power. The power of the Almighty God of the universe always boggles my mind when you think of that. Who holds all the stars in place, all focused down into Jesus, reaching down with compassion, took her hand. <laughs> Almighty God took the little girl's hand, spoke personally to her, gave her life, and told her parents to give her something to eat. This is just the power of Jesus expressed with the most dramatic supernatural results to produce the most normal kind of life. Give her something to eat. And just as His great creative power began it all in the original creation, His power, He has power to raise the dead to life. He showed it physically in this young girl's life, in the life of the son of the widow, in the life of Lazarus, and no doubt others as well. And he's been doing it ever since spiritually. Paul tells us in Ephesians chapter 2, verse 1, you know it well. As for you, you were what? You were dead. You were dead in your transgressions and sins in which you used to live when you followed the way of this world and the rule of the kingdom of the air when you followed Satan. But, verse 4 says, because of his great love for us, God who is rich in mercy made us alive. We were once dead. God made us alive with Christ even when we were dead in our transgressions. Why? Because it was by grace. It was by grace you have been saved. 
In John chapter 5, verse 21, we read, For just as a father raises the dead and gives them life, even so the Son gives life to whom He is pleased to give it. What pleases Him? What pleases Him enough to give people new life, to give them eternal life? Is it just a whim of His? Ah, I think I'll do that for this person. Maybe I'll do that for this person. He tells us in verse 24, same chapter, Very truly I tell you, whoever hears my word and believes him who sent me, that's what pleases him. Whoever hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life and will not be judged, but has crossed over from what? From death to life. He's still doing it. The compassionate power of Jesus. Folks, we have met the conqueror of demons the conqueror of disasters, natural and supernatural. We have met the conqueror of disease, the conqueror of death, the one who alone can provide eternal life, the one who can create a perfect will and will, the one who will bring a new heaven and a new earth where there are no enemies of any kind, physical, social, or spiritual, where there will be no sorrow, there will be no sickness, no tears, no pain, no death. We've met the death conqueror. We have met the King, the Savior, the Lord, the Creator, the Redeemer, and because He lives, we too can live. Because of His great love for us. It's by grace you and I have been saved. There's an old song, those who remember Billy Graham Crusades and good old George Beverly Shea. Amazing voice. Song that was one of his favorites that he used to sing, My Father is omnipotent, and that you can't deny. A God of might and miracle, tis written in the sky. It took a miracle to put the stars in place. It took a miracle to hang the world in, play, in space. But when he saved my soul, cleansed and made me whole, it took a miracle of love and grace. He has given us new life. But sometimes life seems to get the better of us, doesn't it? We get tired. We get discouraged. We doubt. Sometimes we just don't have that spiritual oomph <laughs> anymore. It just, it just feels like we just can't keep going on. That spiritual desire to get her done. Sometimes we need to pray and ask God. Sometimes I need to pray, and I, I have many times asked God to, to encourage me and to reinvigorate me with that new life, the life of Christ. Maybe that's where you are this morning. Maybe you're struggling spiritually. Maybe you're tired spiritually. Attacks are always coming. It doesn't only have to be spiritual. It can be from outside as well. In a moment, we're going to stand and we're going to sing, breathe on me, breath of God. Breathe on me. I come alive. I'm alive when you breathe on me. Awake, awake, awake my soul. It sounds like King David when he's writing the Psalms, right? Awake, awake, awake my soul. God, resurrect these bones from death to life for you alone. Awake my soul. And as we sing that, if you're feeling spiritually discouraged or spiritually tired, 
use this song as a prayer to ask God to reawaken those old bones of ours spiritually and give us that invigoration that only He can do through His Holy Spirit. Father, this morning we thank You. Thank You for the compassion of Jesus, but not only compassion, but the power of Jesus. We thank You that that power was not just exercised 2,000 years ago, and these are cool stories that we can read about, but that power continues to work today in our lives. We who are present here, we who are listening via Facebook, uh, who are uh, participating and and, uh, worshiping You, we were dead, but You have made us alive. We have a new life. Already our eternal life has started, and it's not going to end. Yeah, it's not going to end. Forever, because it's eternal. And Father, I pray that you would reignite the passion in our heart, the passion from Jesus, the passion from your Holy Spirit. And I pray that your name be glorified in our lives as we share that same vision with those around us. In Jesus' name, amen.